And so we might say this is an experience of the void. You're listening to the Digital Void Podcast, where we make sense of a digital and technological environment through humanist values. My name is Josh Chapdelaine, and my co-host is mimeticist Dr. Jamie Cohen. Um, during the pandemic, uh, the QAnon movement has been appears to be gaining a lot of followers. Can you talk about what you think about that and what you have to say to people who are following this movement right now? Well, I don't know much about the movement other than I understand they like me very much, uh, which I appreciate, but I don't know much about the movement. Today, Jamie and I discuss how QAnon is possible, the underlying social and political conditions that needed to exist, how the web's infrastructure caters to conspiracy theories in general, and how we can connect with those who have been radicalized or exposed to Q-adjacent content. Jamie and I conducted this conversation just a day before Donald Trump's comments about QAnon at a press conference. This podcast is only made possible through your support. Make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. Follow us on Spotify and send us your feedback at digivoidmedia at gmail.com. There has been a failure of legacy media outlets to begin to take seriously the rise of conspiracies on the net. From the Seth Rich murder in 2016 to Pizzagate and now finally QAnon, these conspiracies are driving real-world action. Can you paint a picture of how we evolved from the pre-2016 political media environment to the one that we currently face today? I mean, yes. <laughs> I mean, the answer is yes. This is, I mean, you and I both study this, and obviously this is my main direction of work, but not by not on purpose. I mean, as you know from our work, that this this is literally like if you were to take a through line of Pizzagate to the present, you'd get a side story of everything that's going on right now. Um, and I think it's important to look at things from varying perspectives in order to get a more holistic view on what's going on. Because otherwise, if we look at just the pieces, none of it really makes sense. And I think that's part of the sense-making that takes place in QAnon is that you can only see it as small pieces at once. And that's important because if you could only see it in small pieces at once, it's a lot more easy to digest and stick with it. And it also allows the uh, mobility of the belief. In other words, like, um, how do I put this? If, if you were to have a more holistic view, you would likely find structural plot holes in it. And so if you just saw it as pieces by pieces and saw it in the present day, then it's obviously a lot easier to digest and be a little more flexible and allow that flexibility to kind of create the reality around it. So I'm going to tell a short, like, sort of story that kind of explains QAnon from the side. I have a, I have a very strong belief that, like art history, is kind of the view of history in a more aesthetic and historical perspective, because art history isn't so much the idea of studying just the artwork itself or the pieces, but also the motivation that gives the artist the idea of how to paint something or how to create something. So we have to, there's always been this thought about how do you separate the artist from the art and how do you separate the concept from the presentation of the piece? Because which one holds off, holds out more archeologically or historically? Like what will we find in the future? So people often discount like the connection between the two because they often say, okay, well, 
the creator themselves might be problematic or the work of art might not be great. But what we really have to do is when you look at things like that, and that's historically, you have to say, you know, what motivates somebody to create a type of aesthetic? What type of creations are necessary? What type of stressors are publicly under? And so I always remind people that art history itself is the mirror to history. I mean, it's just the visual version of history. And it's a complicated and reductionist statement, but it really is like the side story. And I've always been fascinated by side stories because like, whatever you read, like a pop book, you kind of want to know like how it happened from like just the public's point of view, like what happens when you're just like a citizen and what does it look like? And so this short story that I think is easier to explain is by telling a story about this thing called the Grover house. Okay. <laughs> and the Grover house is insane. Okay. So the best way to describe the Grover house is that it is a terribly designed house, an incredibly terribly designed house. But the point of the Grover house that it became like, how do I say this? It's a DIY house that it was basically created by this person who really just wanted this beautiful house to be theirs. But in designing it kind of made so many mistakes that it's just almost an unusable house. But what really happened in the background is that the internet themselves, the internet, and I often remember that there's this bit in uh, a long time ago about uh, Chris Poole saying that he used to refer to the internet as his community. So the internet isn't a community, but it's got enough people to create a community. And they created threads that kind of like designed the house backwards or reverse engineered it. And so on places like Something Awful and Reddit, this house was dissected and memed over and over again. But the actual use of the meme inspired some of the building. So what happened is this house exists on literally the borderlands between the internet and real life. And it fascinates me that you can construct an actual structure, literally a structure, all the things that are inspired by shitposting and developed because the shitposters appreciate it, but the pride in the building of it is kind of separate from the act of the invention itself. So do you get what I'm saying? There's three strands here. There's the internet strand. It's the place where the communication takes place. There's the real life place where people actually have to do things and live together and, and talk. And then the third place is where they intersect. So if you were able to understand that these types of weird things happen and they don't have to always make sense, then you could expand that to almost anything. <laughs> there is a lot to unpack here. And in looking at the Grover House and its application to the internet and the structures it builds, I want to go back to QAnon, which is the very first instance that you brought up and help to identify what it is. So... Jamie, can you explain what exactly is QAnon? How do people access QAnon? Where are the communities? What does Q actually or ultimately want? And what do Q supporters believe, if anything at all? So the goal here is also to talk about it without accidentally onboarding people. All right, so that's a plus. We have to remember that too. We don't want to like create more confusion so people look it up because the onboarding process for Q is actually quite easy. It's very easy to get into it. So to give the background of Q first without explaining how Q works is Q. So you named a bunch of things earlier about uh, Seth Rich and Pizzagate and all these other things. They're all disconnected from Q, but they later become connected into Q. Q is a post on 4chan 
in 2017 that basically explained to its audience that they were an insider in the administration and they were aware that the Mueller investigation and the Russia investigation was actually part of the plan. That this plan was that Trump himself was working with Mueller in order to take down the deep state. And the the reason he was taking down the deep state is because the deep state was full of pedophiles and sex traffickers. And so all of these people were evil, just straight up evil. So Trump is actually the mastermind that was really there to help design this. Now, Q basically was spitting into the wind and occasionally got a fact or two right. But I think with the chaos of the Trump administration, you could kind of make a bunch of gambles and occasionally one of them does happen. Um, and this caused some sort of validity. And so that the validity of, of Q was started to be called Q drops and Q drops are when Q shows up on any of these message boards and to great fan response. A lot of people are like, Oh my gosh, what's Q saying next? What's the next thing? The only downside is that all the premonitions about the massive jailings, Hillary going to jail, every, the deep state being taken down, they never happened. But the exuberance and the desire to keep hoping kind of became the reality of Q. So Q later actually got kicked off of 4chan and then ended up on 8chan and then kicked off of 8chan and ends up on 8kun. These are all derivatives of the same type of image message board. And lately, I don't think has posted in quite in about two or three weeks. But these Q drops are like a drug to QAnon users. They're like, uh, like it's almost like seeing a religious person in real life. Like to them, it would be like, like if you saw the movie Life of Brian, when like Jesus talks, all of a sudden everybody's just like, oh my God, he's talking. It's just typical cult behavior where it's like, oh wow, this is the moment. I can't believe I'm alive for this. And that exuberance and that charisma is actually kind of like really hard to um, duplicate in any way. So it is exciting to Q fans. So Q drops become the drug for Q supporters and followers. But as you mentioned with the Grover House, the digital infrastructure eventually meets the physical infrastructure and they intersect. So eventually we start seeing Q t-shirts out in public and now Q followers are running for office. We have to take a step back now and talk about how Q can happen because I think it's important so we don't, like I said, the Q shirts are really important for an onboarding process. It's similar to the way that Freemasonry has an onboarding process where you see the compass and square with the G in the center. And by seeing it, you become curious. There's a phrase that Freemasons use, which is to be one, ask one. And that is, that's it. That's the onboarding process. It, it, it requires a, a very physical, real world experience. And actually, to be honest, I wonder how Freemasons are doing in the COVID world. Um, but that was their onboarding process. I think Q has a similar marketing tact, which is you see a Q shirt and you're like, hey, what is that? And that's the onboarding process. So it's like, that. that's there. So all of these things, whether you're talking about the occult, whether you're talking about Q, there's an onboarding process to filling a hole, filling a gap within your mind, a place of confusion and need to have sense making. The main goal of Q and QAnon and QAnon adjacent beliefs is within this idea of stopping sex trafficking. Sex trafficking is a major problem, like a huge problem globally. It's so prevalent that I can remember when I worked on Long Island, occasionally I would see like signs on the side of the road that would be like, call this phone number and you could do modeling. And I was like, holy shit. Because like, when you look at those signs, obviously that's very awful things that are going to happen. Like don't call that number. But the fact those signs were there shows that like 
sex trafficking is like a prevalent thing in our physical space. It's, it's horrible. And then when Epstein had this, the story of Epstein is that not only was it sex trafficking, but it's sex trafficking of children, the most vulnerable of our population, children who don't know any better being taken advantage of by powerful people. So now take that, take that and extrapolate it. All conspiracy theory, and this is, you could read as much conspiracy theory literature as you want. They have very similar frameworks. All conspiracy theories are premised on the same type of thing, which is that there is a framework available for every conspiracy theory to fit. So in other words, the fact that Weinstein exists and he took advantage of young women, the fact that happened creates the idea that that can happen everywhere. We could extrapolate that. The powerful can take advantage of the less powerful. When you get that in your head, you can start feeling a very odd feeling like, how, how can we make this stop? How does this happen? Now, what's the true answer is, is a reform, uh, governmenting, better governmental policies, better ways of tracking this type of poor behavior, not letting lawyers buy out rich people. You know, like there's a lot of good answers that are really reasonable, but American law and world law is very strange. And a lot of times people find this solace in somebody who potentially can become their superhero. And so all of these things are, are part of a larger, real, absolutely real structural problem. Powerful, take advantage of the less powerful. So then you say, okay, how can I solve this on my own? I can't access a police officer. I can't access a prosecutor, but I could access Q. This person seems to know what it feels like to be to stop this thing from happening. It seems that digital structures become replacements and help to amplify feelings of hopelessness that are deeply embedded within conspiracy logics. To be sure, the aesthetics of social media platforms certainly help, but what about these platforms in particular helps to create the fertile ground for Q to grow rather than the nuance of or the participation of going into the real world, organizing and trying to create action from the bottom up as well as the top down, which actually has the potential to create solutions to these deeply rooted anxieties and issues? Oh man, that's a great question. This, I think Q exists in our present and didn't exist previous because of the overwhelming nature of the present. So right now we have Trump, who, whose policy is basically chaos. I mean, that's, that's the goal here. Uh, Steve Bannon, previous to the Trump election, had a very interesting strategy for Trump, which is called flooding the zone. And flooding the zone is uh, governmenting by chaos. And what that means is it's, you could push policy or you can change law, like let's say what Trump's been doing and Mitch McConnell have been doing, which is like installing tons and tons of justices. And they do this quietly and behind the scenes because they push chaos at the foreground. Flooding the zone means overwhelming your mind, getting so much occupied in your mind that you don't have abilities to critically think. And it always reminds you of that Casey Neistat video with the, your life will be so fast and full of adventure that you won't have time to think. And I'm always like, oh, you know, like that type of thing always like bothered me because I was like, that's not what we want. We don't want to be so fast, fast and so full that we can't think. Like you want to have time to sit. So fast and so full that we don't realize that we just watched an ad for a Samsung phone. Right. Just for what? For the idea, the idea, not the reality, but the idea that you will become a YouTuber. So it's, it's all conceptual. And this leads to the answer to your question, which is that you buy into the idea now. You're not buying into any physical proof of it because so much is unknown now, because so much is flooding the zone, that if you could grasp onto any types of bits of hope, 
in, in what quote unquote, an authentic manner of delivery. So that being Instagram, Facebook, and so forth, those types of delivery methods of authentic behavior kind of become your reality. Those are like, oh, wow, this is, I'm actually participating in something that could change the future. And it tricks your mind into thinking that one, you're participating civically, which you aren't, but you tricks your mind into thinking that it's a civic behavior. And then two, it also tricks your mind into thinking that you've changed something because you believe, and this is not to put down anybody who's on that side because they could potentially be brought back, but there's a true belief that they've chosen the right side of history, that that's what they truly believe. And that's really tricky to deal with. I think there is still a common perception that when you log on to Facebook and you see multiple editorials, multiple newspapers, that there is the illusion of choice, that there is the illusion of being able to digest multiple sides of an issue. But the medium is the message. And these platforms have far more information or and psychological information at that, that is algorithmically driven. And it not only exposes you to a particular rabbit hole, but it keeps you within the rabbit hole. And you mentioned this term that I hear thrown around quite a bit, and I would like you to expand on it and its importance in both the rise of Q and in contemporary media narrative framing. And that is to critically think, because that phrase is used by both the left, the right, and everyone. And it's used more to me as a euphemism for uh, think for yourself or not necessarily think critically, but think contrarianly. And so where would you place critical thinking in a digital media environment? And how do people buy into the fact that maybe what they're seeing in front of them is a false profit-driven reality and not one that encourages nuance and deeper conversation that helps to connect us? Whew, that's a question. Um, <laughs> the, uh, I mean, as an educator and somebody who is, uh, as a lifelong educator, regardless of the fields I'm in, is like, that's all, the only, I think, only goal that I ever have is just critical thinking. It's That's it. Um, okay, let's see if we can take this question apart a little bit. So Critical thinking isn't what most people think it is. So that's probably one of the biggest problems with the whole, quote, think for yourself movement, like that whole idea of that. And you have no idea how many counts I see with that in their banner, where it's like, ah, think for yourself. And it's like, that is not, that is, I mean, that's good advice. I mean, in one way, it's like, you don't want to be just this consumer. You never want to be somebody who just blindly consumes. Like, it's just, it's almost like just eating you know, like Swedish fish all day, never, never changing your diet or like having one meal, you only eat chicken fingers. You know, it's like you want to make sure that you diversify things because you can't really know contrast without the diversification of it. The way I've always thought of critical thinking is that you kind of have to know extremes in order to have critical thinking. So a think for yourself movement is very similar to a flood the zone movement. Again, we're going to have to look at this a little historically. So you jump back about six, seven years. And you're going to see that Obama was being praised by the media quite an amount. You know, it's like he was a, a darling to the media. But in doing so, it created a grievance with Republicans and and people who used and started jumping onto platforms like uh, YouTube and so forth that started saying things on YouTube, like we're the new place where there's logic and facts. Like this is where it is. And they started to co-opt the concept of critical thinking by rebranding it under a, this, there are multiple versions of critical thinking. This is the one that we use. 
and this is it. And it was because of that, they had a head start in the current moment. I think that head start gives them the advantage in memes, culture, and so forth. And so the far right actually gets to own that space because they're much more savvy at taking advantage of uh, critical thinking in line. But how do you undo it? Like, how, what do we do? So, okay. So now we say that, okay, there's a head start with this rebranding of logic and facts or critical thinking. And then you come to the present. You're like, we want you to think for yourself, which is basically not allowing anyone to think for themselves. It's basically just offering the right amount of information for them to get. And that's it. So they're only getting it. And that's because the six years of time that we've taken to get here has curated their algorithm to a beautiful silo. They can't, the silo is so large at this point for them that they can't actually see outside of it. So even if they believed, quote unquote, they're thinking for themselves and exploring things that are maybe contrarian to their view, they're not. They're just different flavors of the same view. And so that's an amazing amount of information, which I think several researchers call an infodemic. The SSRC put out a report uh, very recently said that just said uh, misinformation is everyone's problem. And that is about the infodemic, is that we just have so much information, in so many silos, that it's so hard to actually cross from one to the other anymore. They're just You're just simply in an environment. That environment causes us to not actually know what critical thinking is. And so critical thinking, it, again, let me put this backwards. So uh, let me go back to the contrast. One time, a long time ago, a friend of mine uh, we went to a whiskey bar and we had uh, Lagavulin and Lafroig. And these are, I, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing them right. I'm sure there'll be corrections if I'm not. And they're peaty Scottish Highland malts. You know, they're like tough. The only way I could describe it is you're drinking whiskey. Like you start off, the only way I could describe it is that you started a fire in the sand. And after the fire was done, you poured whiskey through the charcoal into your mouth. You know, it's like, it's it's an acquired taste and at first i was like oh oh god you know what the hell did i just drink and my friend said how do you know what kind of whiskey you like if you don't try the ones that you won't like and i was always like oh wow that's that's an interesting concept so it's like pushing the boundaries of where our knowledge and comfort are actually get us to understand better nuance or taste flavors and to use taste is important because we all taste differently we all critically think differently because we come with inherent bias. That inherent bias is how we were brought up. Our friends, our peer groups, our economic status, our race, our culture, our everything. Which then we just rebrand as politics. That's our politics or what our frame is. So critical thinking exists within the inherent bias. So the only way to get real critical thinking is to actually be exposed to something that you truly maybe even dislike at a full. But the fact is, is that you don't. Sometimes we feel that's abhorrent, or sometimes we feel that that's too much to ask of us, or maybe we just simply are overwhelmed by the day that we don't want to expand that into our space. But if we are not exposed to that, then we can't actually become critical thinkers. Now, there's a really crazy term for like how to become, how to get this information in, in a space that's actually more comfortable and you don't have to do it, and it's called school. <laughs> and you could go to higher education, you go to classes, and if your professor is really interested in making you a critical thinker, they're going to push you into spaces that are slightly uncomfortable so that they, you could go and say, okay, now I have a contrast between what I like and what I don't like. And once I've done that, then my brain has the ability to create the spectrum of critical thinking that's necessary, literally necessary to get yourself out of holes. And I don't mean like a hole, like a rabbit hole. I mean, literally like a thought hole. You go in and you start going... 
thinking about something. And then we use confirmation bias, which is the opposite of critical thinking. You just simply already believe in something. So now you're only looking for something to support that thought. Q is confirmation bias down to the bottom. So it's very difficult for us to maneuver around something as big as Q at this current moment. It seems to me that the framing of Q and confirmation bias at its core really plays to human instinct of pattern recognition and trying to confirm our beliefs in an environment that we are still native to. We are the first people on the ground within the first few generations to ever use digital technology. And we're used to pattern recognition. Right. So you always speak about pareidolia and the ability to identify faces in regular everyday objects as a defense mechanism. It's it's biologically evolved. And so when you look at what influence the digital environment has and the framing and the years of advance that think for yourself and logic and facts and how those have been rebranded and how Bannon has flooded the zone. And it, it helps to create this sense of cognitive dissonance, whereby not only does the average Q person not see the photos of Donald Trump with Jeffrey Epstein, but they are able to harness a very true human ability to live with paradox and contradiction to fit the narrative that has been created by Q, because in the Q story, Donald Trump is the savior and the media, which perpetuates the image of Trump with Epstein, or at least in theory should be doing so to a greater extent, is framing Trump because he is the one trying to take down the deep state. And that cognitive dissonance allows at least 25% of Americans to believe that there's some truth to the fact that COVID-19 was a planned pandemic, according to new research uh, released by the Pew Research Center. And so to me, I view this issue as a blatant structural failure to address systemic inequalities, oppression, marginalization, and simultaneously underpinning and overarching this issue is a weak social safety net and a diminishing quality of life. Can you speak about the factors that you feel most play into the large-scale distrust of institutions and the rise of conspiracy? Yeah, this is this is a sad question. <laughs> um, first, the, the, the answer to the cognitive dissonance. Uh, I have always, when I teach all of this, like this, it, teaching internet studies or studying internet studies or talking about internet studies like we're doing now, has to be taken seriously. And it shouldn't just be a stake account, frozen stake account, talking about why we need these types of studies in classes. Like we actually need this type of information to be talked about to young people, to give them a sense of this, to what cognitive dissonance actually means. Because most people, again, just like critical thinking, aren't aware of what these terms are. Jonathan Lethem, he's like one of my favorite authors. I've just, I'm like, probably read everything he's ever written. You know, it's just... I, like I barely am excited to like meet famous people, but like I'm always excited to meet him. And he once told a story about cognitive dissonance. And he said, here's, and here's the story of cognitive dissonance. There's a man looking for his keys on the street. He dropped them. He was hammered. And so he's scurrying around and looking and he's underneath the street lamp looking for his keys. And so a man walks up to him and says, Hey, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm looking for my keys. And he goes, well, where'd you drop them? And he points about 25 feet away into the darkness. And he goes somewhere over there. And the guy goes, but why aren't you looking there? Why are you looking under here? And he goes, well, there's more light here. <laughs> and so that is cognitive dissonance, looking where there's light, but not where there's the answers. And so that type of thing is exactly what we're looking at right now. And I think your question is apt because it's like, when the pandemic video came out, it was light. It felt like an answer. Science 
holds science is never stable and people want answers all the time. Like I saw something today. I saw a tweet today that bothered me to the point where I was like, oh man, like I don't even know how to like process a tweet like this. Sometimes it like breaks my brain and I kind of fizzle out a little bit. And the tweet was, why should we believe the CDC? They once said that we should use DDT in our house. And I'm like, holy shit. That's like 70 years of history flattened into one tweet. So I was like, yeah, man, the CDC, before Rachel Carson kind of got out there and kind of like started talking about the effects of these things in cancer and what had happened, the CDC was didn't know what the hell they were doing. Science is always moving. But it's also, do you know how long it takes to test anything? Like anything takes forever. And so people just want answers. And this, a plague, we've never, none, nobody today alive has lived through a plague. So here we are, we're living through a plague. And in that is that we don't know how it works. And Dan Harmon actually brought this up on the Duncan Trussell show. He goes, no matter how smart we are, we believe ourselves to be so incredibly smart. And we're still, we, we got taken down by this, the, by the pandemic. You know, it's not a plague yet because it's like the, the death rate isn't that. But I, I always use the term plague because it's the, the motivation to, to shelter in place and to protect ourselves and protect others around us are within that. And it goes, remember, we're not just talking about the pandemic and we're not just talking about Q. We're also talking about the structural problems that you you mentioned, which is like, how do we get ourselves feeling franchised again when we are all disenfranchised? And it's also like, what happens when we really expand this circle out, which is that like in the face of global climate change, we don't know what's going to happen, but we know it's going to be bad. And the ability to only look at the present as if the present is all answerable is like really dangerous historically and to each other. Like, so with climate change, let's say we're wrong. Let's just say we're wrong. Let's say everyone who knows that climate change is an existential threat is is actually incorrect. But in the process of trying not to ruin everything. We actually made the earth better by accident. Wouldn't that be a better outcome than if we were right that climate change is an existential threat and we all died? Like, I just think that it's possible that even if we don't have the full knowns, wouldn't it be better to err on the side of caution in order to try to just be better for other people? That's the whole mask thing too. So I think the mask thing becomes a very American problem which is that the mask isn't for the user, it's for the other person, it's for somebody else. The United States specifically, since the Industrial Revolution, has prioritized the individual. And that prioritization of the individual has caused us to make America an individualized country. Like that type of thing means individual freedoms override that of the collective. Individual liberty versus collective well-being is at the heart of the Q versus outsider debate. But why is QAnon important, particularly right now? And what role will Q play in the 2020 election, if any? I ask myself this every day. And here's why I ask it. Because QAnon is a very interesting artifact of our present that doesn't really line up to the way things work. And what I mean is this, where does QAnon fit in capitalism? Why don't we understand it the way we understood the way that brands created peer purchasing power in the early aughts. Brands would be like, like we would, we would be, you would want to be Nike everything. You would want to be Air Jordans. You would want to be whatever. Your brand kind of identified who you were. As we moved into influencers in the 2010s, as we talked with Sarah Fryer about, Sarah Fryer did that great work of exposing that Instagram kind of invented the idea of the influencer. And so once the influencer 
like became the thing that it moved from brands to peer-to-peer influence, but both result in capital exchanges. There's some sort of mercantile event going on. You know, there's like some sort of like capital base. So where does Q fit? Like, what is Q selling? What is what is the goal of Q and why is it working so well? That question is going to be the question that will probably either be its undoing or its solidification. <laughs> so if somebody asks the right questions, does Q make us profit? then the answer will be Q is here forever. If somebody finally goes, well, this is actually taking away from our profit, then Q will go away. (laughs) So there is a matter of where is it fitting right now? And so where it's fitting is the stability of the middle space of that, which is that it's not hurting and it's not helping. And so by doing that, it's a faith more than it's a a capital. And so until it becomes its own church, I think it's like just a comfort candy for many people. You're saying it's not hurting and it's not helping, but you're seeing more and more of your former students, uh, more and more of people that you've known falling into, if not full Q rabbit holes, at least sharing Q adjacent content. And I'm beginning to see that as well. And at what point does this begin to hurt? Is it at the point of sharing a meme or is it at the point of refusing to wear a mask and going out and getting an elderly or at-risk person or anyone sick with COVID? All of it. To be honest, I think the thing that hurts the most for me watching people become Q radicalized or like down the Q hole is their foreignness or their estrangement from people close to them. I think that to me is the saddest part. I think that's sadder than anything else. Uh, the other part is worse. Uh, hurting people, literally hurting, is the worst thing you could possibly do. Uh, there's no pain in helping somebody else out by just wearing a mask or caring or, or just staying home. Like there's this whole belief it's like, well, shouldn't there be like six feet or between us? Or shouldn't we be staying home? Or shouldn't we do? Yes, you should be staying home. Like you don't have to wear a mask if you just stay home. Like that's, there is other options, all right? You don't have to do these things. The idea of normal is so embedded in our brains that like people just want to recreate normal, but normal is the problem. Normal's been the problem since since the end of World War II, since the end of Vietnam. We've just created a normal. I always remind people, everything you've ever known is 75 years old. That's it. That's all it is. Plastic, credit cards, minivans, all of that exists within 75 years. There is a normal that is so short-lived. And if you just think that that's normal, then you're going to continually perpetuate this horrible behavior that we've just had since pre-1964. And that still exists when we have fucking 2019 murders and police brutality. So it's like, this is just normal is bad. And so people don't have a grasp that things change and it's okay for things to change. And it's, that's normal. Normal is change. And it's like, For me, sometimes a lot of this shit feels like it's like pre-medieval. Like in the medieval era, change was sacrilegious. Change would get you burned at the stake. In many cases, change would get you literally killed. Because if you put that poison in somebody's brain that things can change, you're you're the bad guy. So the collective in that sense was the normal. And today the collective is supposed to be the change. So it's kind of like a complete and utter switch because like you mentioned before, it's like neoliberalism infects everything we do. It's the market, the open free market. And so the normal of the open free market is just a name for what we've been doing for pretty much for all of history, but now it's just more individualized. And I I think 
the saddest part, like I said, is that estrangement, getting sucked into these spaces and then losing your friends and your family, and then not understanding why. I think that's that's sad. Like I think they feel disenfranchised inside of their there's little spaces where it's like, why don't you get that trial trafficking's bad? Why don't you understand that X, Y, and C is bad? Like they feel lost or they feel sad by that. It's like, oh no, like they don't, it's not like their family doesn't want to support them. It's just, they're saying words that are confusing to their family. And so there's gotta be a, a knowledge base. And, and more importantly, there's gotta be a government that understands the internet. <laughs> you know, it's like, we don't, I think this is a global problem. I think the global world doesn't really understand the internet in terms of what it means to actually have digital culture. Our Senate and our Congress are rich. They don't represent the people. And so when you don't represent the people, you don't get that like, the internet is a place for expression because you could express there without losing your job. Well, unless unless you say something like extremely shitty, which in which case you're just a shitty person probably in every place, whether it's the internet or not. But these types of things are like places of expression where somebody somebody once said like why why is it more okay for like a a, a person who works at McDonald's to um, de-escalate a situation more than a cop can de-escalate a situation and they're just like well a McDonald's person can lose their job <laughs> and so and so that type of like thing is like like that's that's the structural issues that we're always looking at it's like that if we had just had a better sense of how the internet operates and how we communicate with one another. And how we can understand that caring for somebody actually doesn't hurt you, that that it becomes like, that is the primary. But again, if you don't have a way of embedding that socially or creating those types of safety nets, like you brought up before, which is like healthcare, ways that we can't feel uncertain. Like, I don't know, man. Like it's, it's one of those things where it's like, no wonder IQ works because even if we don't have a social safety net, at least somewhere out there, there's a superhero that's going to take down the child sex rings. Right. And in taking down the child sex rings, which you alluded to earlier and are a very real problem. Uh, the New York Times, I believe Kevin Roos had a fantastic piece last Thursday speaking about how this is a very real issue. But the grand conspiracy, if there is one, is not the politicians in charge. It's much more likely to be someone, unfortunately, in your town, uh, saw a parent, an uncle or a neighbor yeah. or someone who is immediately in your community and it is happening everywhere and i guess the i guess that fulfills some sort of control and desire to try to feel like they are in control and an uncontrollable space but in regards to a 2020 election where a little bit over two months from the 2020 election and one of the most concerning parts about Q is not necessarily that the people are trying to do something bad because like you said, uh, Q followers are trying to do something good. They're trying to stop sex trafficking, but there is the president's failure to denounce or at least even acknowledge Q in anything other than amplifying Q's messaging more than giving a wink to not just Q, but its content. Can you explain what role Q is playing in support in, dr in drumming up support for Trump's reelection campaign and why it's so important to look at Q, not just on a microcosm, but as a critical part of Trump's reelection strategy? So maybe you just answer the question I asked before, which is, and I think you're, you have, I think it's important to understand that Trump 
doesn't understand QAnon at all. Okay. Doesn't get it. I think that his grown large adult children do understand it. I think they get it. And I think they understand that, that this, they don't want to lose out on that community. Similar to the way that the Democrats for some stupid reason want to bring in like John Kasich and stuff. Like they just want to make the big tent problem go work for them. So it's like, whose tent will you be in? And I think your answer is why court Q for, 2020. And I think the answer to why court Q is has a lot to do with the market itself, which is that under Trump, the stock market people, the big bucks people actually do benefit because of the tax cuts and everything. Q might fit into this system economically in a way of support that we're not, that I think money makers and money marketers actually do understand uh, more than it is a belief system. And the reason I'm saying this is because religions do get born. They do get created. Uh, we watched the Church of Latter-day Saints get invented 19th century. So it's just a fairly recent religion that is now massive. Scientology exists. Like these religions can get born. They do have a place for this. But Q is very interesting because it more resembles um, the Millerites and later the Mormons because it's the common people. These aren't like executives. These aren't like uh, bankers. I mean, some of them are, but like a very common thread of QAnon is just like anyone can just join it. You know, it's like, it's just, it's just there. It's easy accessible. And all I have to do is like follow these message board and talk to people and then put WWG, you know, your hashtag up and then whatever. Like it's, it's an accessible belief system. And, and to me, and not to go into the, like, uh, as you know, I'm a humanist and an agnostic in that way, but it's, to me, it's, it's very much like a faith-based system, which is like, how we we create sense making with communities, and that's why the way churches exist and religious systems actually operate is like, okay, well, I don't know the world, but I do know this. And in 2020, it's the arc bend of how evangelicals really truly believed in somebody like Trump and that type of true belief. True belief. I'm not, I'm not talking about like mediocre belief or like a skeptical belief. I'm talking like in it. That type of thing is, is a framework or a tool set. And that tool set can be used over and over again. So it is possible that the overlap is larger than we think. And the courting of QAnon um, is actually part of a growth-based plan for 2020's election season and potentially further. The growth-based plan sounds a lot like the central operating system of the United States and most of the West. And I think to try to enter a zone where we can think a little bit more optimistically or humanly, how do we begin to take action? What what are steps that we can take to begin to dissolve some of these tensions and anxieties and really try to bring someone back if we see them spreading Q adjacent or Q memes on Facebook or their social media or if we see a Q shirt out in public? What are things that you think are the best actionable plans? Wow, that is a really great question. Um, so that's that's a tricky question because I think this is the how to speak, how to talk about memes with your family type of thing, which is like how do you talk about things with immediate, without immediately making somebody feel uncomfortable? And I think it's a willingness, and this might sound somewhat like way too liberal or something like that, like to br- cross those bridges or something like that. But I think it's important. I think I think it's really important for people to communicate. I think it's important for somebody to not be judgmental and. You don't have to say to somebody, oh, okay, I listened to your story and I have to immediately believe in it. But I I think it's important for us to just have conversations, 
not to believe in somebody else's point of view, but to have the reflexivity to understand that somebody else has a point of view. And when we do that, we kind of get a sense of how somebody comes to that. So I think a good way of doing this is our overall mantra, which is like everyone comes to their belief somehow. And if we could understand that, we get a better sense of humanity as a whole. So you get a sense of what steps in their life took them to this specific moment. And if we could respect that, just not respect their belief, but respect that path to how we got here, you have a better sense of understanding of how people just do, how people are. We're very complicated. Humans are complicated, confused. They get sad. We, a lot of things that make no sense make us feel very hurt and uncomfortable. And these gaps either result in anger, energy, or just straight up depression. And you know what? Those feelings are okay. You're allowed to have feelings. So I think it's really important for us to just have, constantly be in touch with the idea that people have feelings and ask, how did you come to these feelings? And we're not the world's therapists. We're not somebody who has to like always just ask questions the way that a therapist would. But I think if we don't come at somebody judgmentally, but rather like literally to, to really frame it right is like, in a, a militant friendship wise, like literally like that, like be very aggressively informed that you have to approach this as like, they are not my enemy. Then I think we get a good sense of like how to really get people to talk to each other. It sounds so much easier than it seems, but Jamie, thank you for this conversation. It is just the first of many as we approach the 2020 election and beyond for better and for worse. And thank you for listening to the Digital Void podcast. You can follow Jamie on Twitter at New and Digital, myself on Twitter at Josh Chapdelaine. Make sure to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts if you enjoy the show. Make sure to visit digitalvoid.media for the latest episodes and upcoming workshops that we offer in partnership with Civic Hall. 